0: Let us turn to the Word of God that He may teach us. We have several scripture readings this afternoon, which, believe it or not, we will tie all together. Our first reading comes from Genesis 17. this is in connection with the question of why we as a church baptize infants. That's the big topic that we'll be focusing on this afternoon. And so let's begin in Genesis 17, reading verses 1 through 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Next, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12. The thing we want to see in this passage is the place of the children in the covenant. And so we'll read Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 through 7. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and shall destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Next we turn to Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah 9 verses 23 through 26. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are uncircumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Finally, let's turn to the New Testament, to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, verse 21, and we'll read through 4, verse 17. There's an argument that Paul is making here that's important for us to follow, and namely that argument is that Israel lived or had to live by faith, just as we in the New Testament do. So you can track that argument through these verses. Romans 3, then verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? so that the right so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith for it is of th- it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Excuse me. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as the summary of the Christian faith, and we take that as our starting point to study the fundamental doctrines of the Christian and Reformed faith. And this week we find ourselves in Lord's Day 27, which is on page 541 of your Books of Praise. This is concerning the sacrament of baptism Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No, only the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins? God speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ remove our sins just as water takes away dirt from the body. But even more important, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly cleansed from our sins spiritually as we are bodily washed with water. Should infants, too, be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism as sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the old covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the new covenant. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we're continuing our series of sermons on the sacraments, which we began several weeks ago. Uh, The first week we looked at the the sacraments in general, why we have them, what we can expect from them. Uh, And then last week we looked at the meaning of the sacrament of baptism, uh, what it means, what it gives, what it does not give. The goal for this afternoon is to look specifically at the question uh, that we find in question answer 70, uh, 74, why we as a church baptize also infants, and why we believe that's a biblical thing to do. The question of infant versus adult baptism is probably the single greatest divide between Protestant churches Today, It's persisted right since the time of the Reformation, and it's still an event that smart, godly, faithful, believing Christians have not been able to resolve and come to agreement on this. And so it should be said from the outset, we ought to still recognize our Bible-believing Baptist brothers and sisters as exactly that, brothers and sisters in Christ and we ought to maintain, it, maintain the respect that, that we have for them. If we have the Spirit of Christ, well, then we also recognize and discern the Spirit of Christ wherever He works. And wherever there is a, des, a desire to submit oneself to Scripture, there the Spirit of Christ is at work. Uh, there, are, there are doctrines where we ought to declare that someone has no share in Christ. This is certainly not one of them. Our Baptist brothers are 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 motivated in their belief by the desire to submit to Scripture and to follow Christ. And here we're, we should understand, we're not talking about the differences between true and false churches. We have uh, those marks laid out in in the Belgic Confession. But here we're talking about the marks of true and false Christians. Those marks also being laid out in the Belgic Confession. And let me read that. It says... True Christians may be recognized by these marks. They believe in Jesus Christ as the only Savior. They flee from sin and pursue righteousness. They love the true God and their neighbor without turning to the right or to the left. They crucify their flesh and its works. Although great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their life. They appeal constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience "...of Jesus Christ, in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through, him, through, through faith in Him." That's the mark of a Christian, according to our confessions. And we want to keep that recognition in mind, then, as we work through this issue. We, we have one set of marks by which we distinguish churches with whom we have fellowship. We have another set of marks by whom we discern Christians that do belong to Christ." None of that is to say, though, that this doctrine does not matter. It isn't only about baptism, the the sacrament itself. Uh, this, This doctrine touches a great deal of other doctrines and other parts of Scripture and how we think about them. And understand them. And that's why it often doesn't really make much of a difference if you're talking with a Baptist brother or sister to simply argue about the question of baptism itself. You can point to household baptisms, for example, and, uh, or, or you can talk, a uh, Baptist, on the other hand, can talk about passages that require belief on the part of Christians that, that put believing and baptism together, and they would argue that, that then, therefore, they must always belong together. We can argue about baptism itself, but it often doesn't make much of a difference because baptism is just the, the surface issue, and there are several other major, major doctrinal issues underlying our view on baptism. Those are the ones that we want to take a look at this, this afternoon. So obviously our disagreement over infant and adult baptism does reveal a difference in understanding about baptism itself. But there are a number of issues beyond baptism. For example, the place of children in the covenant and in the church. Do they belong in the church? Are they part of the church? Even among uh, different Baptist groups, there is diversity of understanding there, as there is among different Reformed groups groups. There's disagreement as well, which leads to another question. What about the meaning of the covenant? What does the covenant mean? That's certainly a real point of disagreement. What is the covenant and what's included or who's included in it? It's a huge question that surrounds this issue of who ought to be baptized. And and that disagreement, those disagreements, are rooted in yet another question, the relationship between the Old Testament and And the New Testament, how much of the Old Testament is normative or or still authoritative for us? How much of the Old Testament determines our faith in the New Testament? Some Baptists would say anything that's not explicitly repeated in the New Testament is no longer normative for us. I would argue, together with most Reformed believers, that whatever is not explicitly or implicitly changed remains authoritative for us. The New Testament didn't come to simply abrogate or, or dispose of the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. And so that means there were things that were shadows that were replaced by the reality themselves. But there are also things that were not shadows that continue to remain today. So to give examples, the sacrifices and the ceremonies in the temples, these were shadows that pointed ahead to Christ. Uh, and, and so they uh, no longer remain because Christ has come. But the Ten Commandments, for example, those were not meant to be shadows. Those were meant as the enduring will of God, which we strive to obey still today. The command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that wasn't meant as a shadow. It's meant to remain even today, and it does. Uh, we could go on and on. The nearness of God towards his people. We sang about that in Psalm 145. The Lord is near to all who call upon him in truth. Well, that's not something that was a shadow that passes away. That's part of the, the faith of the Old Testament covenant as it is for us today. And that then relates to one last question, perhaps the most important of all, which has to do with the way of salvation in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Was salvation in the Old Testament by birth, or was it by faith? Many Baptists will argue that the blessings that come from God came by birth in the Old Testament, but they come by faith in the New Testament. And to be honest, many Reformed believers often think this way. And for a Baptist, then, they would argue this is why the Jews would circumcise their children, because the blessings came by birth, but why we ought not to baptize ours, because the blessings come by faith. Well, I hope to show you from, from our study of Romans uh, 3 and 4, that that is not the, the, the case about the Old Covenant, that there was salvation by birth. That has never been the case, Old Testament or New Testament. Salvation has always been by faith. Old Testament and New Testament. And understanding that makes a difference on our view of baptism. So there are these many, many issues that surround the question of infant versus adult baptism. It isn't simply a matter of trying to deduce what practice was most likely in, in the New Testament church, which at the moment we have no absolute proof either way. But it involves first answering these other more fundamental questions. And so that's the goal then for this afternoon, to, to work on what we believe are the biblical answers to those questions. And then also I hope to deal with some, perhaps, objections to these And in all of this, we need to keep in mind the spirit of conversation with our Baptist brothers and sisters. It ought always to be one of love and fellowship and, as we've seen from Philippians, working towards agreement. It's not just brushing over the issue and saying we can agree to disagree. It's saying we ought to work together towards agreement. And we do believe that God can bring us together uh, in agreement. Our goal is to be of one mind. And so our goal as we study this issue this afternoon is to shape our thoughts so that we can have better conversations with our Baptist brothers and sisters. All of this, of course, is a much, much, much longer discussion than one could ever pack into an afternoon sermon. And so I do promise I will not go on forever. There will be no eudicuses falling out of windows this afternoon. I want to focus the bulk of our attention on that question of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, because when this is properly understood, a lot of other things do fall into place. I believe this is the root of the disagreement, and it's an area where Reformed believers often misunderstand things as well. And that matters, because more than half of your Bible is the Old Testament, and if you don't know how to read it properly, or if you sort of consider it all as being shadows that, don't, that aren't normative for your faith, your faith will suffer as a result. Half of your Bible is effectually gone. In Second Timothy, Timothy 3, verse 16, Paul told Timothy, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And it's good for us to recognize when Paul wrote that, they didn't have a New Testament yet. Or at least, I guess they, he just wrote part of it in that moment. But he was referring there to the Old Testament scriptures. Do we think of the Old Testament in that way? as as breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. The same is true of what he says in the verse right before that, in fact, where he says to Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He wrote that about the Old Testament. Those, Those sacred writings that make you wise for salvation are the Old Testament. Now, sometimes we speak of Christ as having come to fulfill the Old Testament. In fact, Scripture itself speaks that way. But fulfill does not mean abrogate or abolish. In fact, that's the point that Christ himself made. He said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In the same way, when Jesus was baptized, he said he needed to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. He obviously wasn't saying that, therefore, righteousness doesn't matter. It's now irrelevant to us. It means he was accomplishing what righteousness demanded And so the same is true when Christ fulfilled the Old Testament. He came to accomplish what the Old Testament demanded. It does not mean that the Old Testament therefore no longer applies. It means he came to accomplish the things it pointed to and was waiting for. Now that does mean then that there are certain things that were only shadows that will now have to give way to future reality. Uh, the temple and the sacrifices and the ceremonial laws, all of them were meant to point, point forward to Christ. And since Christ is now here, those things have come to an end. But not, obviously not everything in the Old Testament is shadow. I mentioned the Ten Commandments. Uh, I might have also mentioned the promises God made to to his people of an everlasting covenant. God's faithfulness, God's, as we're again, God's nearness to to his people those are things we do not regard as shadows. And so it's good to make this distinction. Not all of the Old Testament is shadows. Uh, Some of it is just as full reality as the New Testament. Uh, Just because we live in the New Testament age does not mean that everything has changed and that we can't take anything away from the Old Testament anymore. Some things have changed. Some things remain. Uh, now, most Baptists also would recognize this, but the reality is that many Baptists and many Reformed people treat the Old Testament in that fashion. When, when a point is drawn from the Old Testament, we say, yeah, well, that, that was the Old Testament, now we live in the New Testament. As if it's almost an entirely different religion or even an entirely different God. That is not the case, And, of course, that's not how Christ himself came to bring, uh, when he brought the gospel. He never presented it as something that was contradictory to the Old Testament or that abolished the Old Testament. Well, here's where this, this matters, then, for baptism. Most Baptists and, and many Reformed believers wrongly assume that the Old Testament offered one path to salvation, and the New Testament offers another. That in the Old Testament, a person just had to be born into the covenant to be saved. But now in the New Testament, we have to believe. Now, if you distill that out, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that that cannot be the case. What do you do, for example, with someone like King Ahab, someone born into the covenant, a member of the covenant, a circumcised Jew who did more evil than any king before him and who died under God's judgment? And of course, He's only one of hundreds of examples. The Old Testament is full of words of judgment by God against the covenant people because of their unbelief and disobedience. Psalm 95 talks about a whole generation that passed away in the, in the wilderness because of their unbelief. So, and all of that was true despite the fact that they were born into the covenant So clearly there was more to salvation than simply being born in the covenant. And that's the point that Paul makes in Romans 3 and 4. Circumcision was never what made a person righteous before God. Even Abraham was was circumcised after he believed and not before. Circumcision was the seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. It never guaranteed his salvation apart from, from his faith. Salvation, in other words, has always been by faith, New Testament and old. When we we rightly understand that, then the meaning of circumcision as sign of the covenant becomes more clear. Children were circumcised as heirs of of the covenant and heirs of God's promises But that never meant that circumcision was a guarantee of their salvation apart from their faith, regardless of whether they believed. They still had the obligation to believe, and they would not be saved without faith. It doesn't matter whether you're talking Old Testament or New. In both both Testaments, every individual has the responsibility to respond to God in faith. That's also why we read from Jeremiah 9, and there are many other passages like it. In Jeremiah 9, the people are commanded to know the Lord. He says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his his wisdom, etc. But let him who boasts, boast in this that he understands and knows me. That was an expectation for the old covenant people. Uh, They were expected to reflect the Lord. He says, I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness, and in these things I delight, declares the Lord. They were expected to reflect that. And he says they were, they were to be circumcised not only in the flesh, but also in their hearts. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, the covenant people, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, uh, who, uh, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel, he says, are uncircumcised in heart. Uh, being circumcised in heart was just as much an expectation in the Old Testament as it is in the New in fact, we can even say the same about being born again. That too is not a reality that's limited to the New Testament. And so it's, in fact, that's what Jeremiah means by speaking of circumcision in the heart. And that's why the Lord Jesus in, in John 3, when he's explaining these things to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus didn't understand it, Jesus never excused him and said, Well, I don't expect you to understand it. This is a New Testament thing. No, he says, Are you the teacher of Israel? and yet you don't understand these things. He ought to have known better. Being born again in heart is just as much a reality in the Old Testament as it is in the New. And so circumcision in the flesh was never a substitute for circumcision in the heart. Unbelieving Jews were cut off and believing Gentiles were grafted in, both Old Testament and New. The scale is different. In the New Testament, the the grafting in of the Gentiles has gone global. It's multiple times what it was, but it's still a reality that you find in both. Faith is what makes one a living member of the covenant, not birth. And so when we recognize that in both covenants, salvation has always been by faith, then we can recognize that the new covenant is not an entirely new thing, and not an entirely different thing than the old. It's an extension of the old covenant. And when we understand that, then we can no longer dismiss circumcision as something that was done because then you were simply born into salvation. Uh, and we can't dismiss it as as simply an Old Testament reality that has no New Testament implications, Uh, as if then salvation was through birth and now it's through faith. That's the strategy by which uh, circumcision is dismissed. But it does not work when you break the details down. When we understand that, then we can turn to the question, why did God have the children of Abraham circumcised as sign and seal of the covenant. In other words, what place did the children of Abraham have in the Old Covenant? And is there any reason to believe that it's different in the New Covenant? It's very clear that children were heirs of the promises in the Old Testament. Even though salvation was by faith, not by birth, yet they were heirs of the promises we read a few verses that show that, and there are many more. So in Genesis 17, the Lord said to Abram, I establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. They belonged in the covenant. And so one thing that this teaches us then is that God establishes his covenant not just with individuals, but with families. The way that God has built the world, families are the unit on which society turns and through which faith is passed on. Faith is almost always passed on through the family. And so God consistently makes his covenant with entire families. And so in the Old Covenant, even though salvation was through faith, the children of Abraham were received as members of the covenant, full members with the obligation to respond in faith. And so as such, they received the sign of the covenant, and they were full participants in covenant life. They were present at the Passover. They were together with the rest of the congregation when the blood of the sacrifices was sprinkled over them. You can read about that in Exodus 24. That explicitly mentions that the children were there as well. And we read from Deuteronomy 12, where the people were commanded to worship God together with their entire households, and to rejoice in God together with their households. So these children had reason to rejoice in God. They were members of the covenant, they were heirs of the promises, and they were expected to respond in faith. And so if the nature of salvation has not changed from Old Testament to New, and it hasn't, and if the New Covenant is then an extension of the Old rather than a simple replacement of the Old, And if children were full members of the old covenant and expected then to learn from their parents, think of Deuteronomy 6 that commands us to love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then commands parents to teach this to their children, if that was the case then, and if being born again even was as much a requirement then as it is now, is there any reason why children would now be excluded from that covenant even though they were included in the Old Covenant. Is there any text that teaches that? That in the New Covenant, the blessings of the Covenant no longer apply to the children of believers as they did in the Old. There, there is no text. Instead, what we see consistently in, in the New Testament is that the children are included with the rest of the congregation in the church. So in Acts 21, when Paul bids farewell to the to the church of Ephesus, It says the whole congregation together with their wives and children went down to the water to say goodbye. They were understood to be part of the church. When Paul writes to the church of Ephesus later on, he addresses the church as a whole as saints in the Lord. And in that same letter, he writes directly to the children. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And what is in the Lord supposed to mean if those children do not belong to the Lord. We're familiar with some of these texts, the ones that are mentioned in our form for baptism. For example, when the Lord Jesus took the children in his arms and blessed them. And that too makes no sense at all, if they are not members of the covenant. And in that same text, the Lord says, Let the little children come to me, for to such belong the kingdom, uh, belongs the kingdom of heaven. When he says, to such, he obviously includes those children themselves. That's, in fact, why, of course, he he blesses them. Uh, Likewise, in Acts 2, uh, Peter tells the crowd that the promises are for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, whoever the Lord God calls to himself. And finally, just one more text that maybe we're less familiar with. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14, Paul is teaching about mixed marriages where one, uh, one individual is a believer and the other is not. And he tells the believers not to divorce their unbelieving spouses because, he says, the unbelieving husband is sanctified because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, there's no reasonable way to accept that verse other than to say that the children of believers are holy. They do belong to the Lord. Now, it's true. The same thing is said of the unbelieving husband and wife, that they too are are sanctified. And, of course, we don't baptize them. But that's consistent with the nature of the covenant. Adults have the obligation to believe in proportion to their ability to believe. The children belong but you cannot yet expect a full response of faith. When that time comes, that expectation will be there. Uh, with the, uh, and so it is with the adults. So the unbelieving husband or wife is sanctified by, by the believing one, but needs to show that response of faith that's demanded of every adult. So so Paul clearly says that the children in spite of the one unbelieving children or unbelieving parent they still are sanctified in the Lord and therefore they are to be received in the church and as they grow up just as in the old covenant the parents have the duty to instruct them in the way of salvation and they are expected to believe and respond in faith these things haven't changed in the old testament uh, from from the old testament to the new there's no indication anywhere that this has changed and really you can only imagine the kind of controversy that would have existed at that time if these things did change it would have been a major change in the understanding of the covenant and it would, have, it would have involved a huge controversy and a great amount of teaching. Now, one of the, the difficult questions that this, that this leads us to is, doesn't this make the covenant impure? Doesn't this mean that there are unregenerate people within the covenant? And I would argue, yes. Yes, it does. And they're called covenant breakers that's true also in the New Testament, just as it was in the Old, as with people like Ahab and others. In fact, in Hebrews 10, verse 29, the author there speaks of people, again, this is New Testament people, who will ultimately be under judgment. And he says, "'How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace?' What we're talking there uh, what we're talking about there is covenant breakers. Clearly, not everyone who is in the covenant is automatically elect. Uh, those are different categories and we shouldn't be confusing them. The covenant is the place of God's promises. Election is is the the group of those in whom God ultimately works faith. Those are not the same categories. Uh, I mentioned last week the, the differences that we have, or two weeks ago, the differences that we have with the the PRC, and this is the central point of confusion that has kept us, unfortunately, apart. Uh, because they insist that everyone in the covenant is also automatically elect, that God only makes the covenant with those who are elect. And, and what you must do then is you must say, if a child turns out to not be elect, then they must have never really been in the covenant. But that's problematic because every one of us has heard the covenant promises being given to that child in the name of God through the voice of of the minister. We all heard that when the child was baptized. And so it leads us to conclude maybe God didn't really mean those promises. Of course, they wouldn't speak that way, but these are the conclusions that that kind of thinking ultimately leads to. We want to keep covenant and election separate as distinct categories. We we shouldn't do this, turn this covenant into a mystery. In Scripture, Old and New Testament, God's covenant is real. It's visible. It's objective. In the Old Testament, it was made with the family of Abraham and any who attached themselves visibly to that. In the New Testament, of course, it's gone global. It includes Gentiles from throughout the earth. But in both Old and New Testament, God's covenant is visible. People are visibly added in through baptism and sadly visibly removed through excommunication. We should never think of the covenant in terms of uh, mysterious, as if it's a mysterious, invisible reality, as if nobody really knows for sure who's in and who's out. That's not the covenant that Scripture presents. It's very objective and visible. And that does mean, then, there are unregenerate people who, for now, are a part of the covenant, but will not ultimately be saved. This is true in Old and New Testament. So let me summarize then. We've seen that not all of the Old Testament is merely shadows, so it cannot be simply dismissed. The law of God has not changed. The character of God has not changed. The way of salvation by faith has not changed. We've seen that then, just as now, salvation has always been by faith. And yet we've also seen that even in that context, children were given the sign of the covenant and were included as full members of the covenant. And so there's no reason to believe that now they are excluded in the New Testament. And in fact, we've seen many texts that indicate the opposite. They are still called holy to the Lord. Now, all of that does not mean that they are automatically saved simply by being members of the covenant, just as in the Old Testament. They have the obligation to believe. You can say salvation is theirs, together, though, with the responsibility to believe and respond in faith to that salvation. And so then, with all of that as the groundwork, the question of baptism is is fairly straightforward. If children belong in the church as much in the New Testament as in the old, and if they're members of the covenant and heirs of the promises in the New Testament just as in the old, should they also receive the sign of the covenant? The reason this is so difficult for for many people is because baptism is a sign of washing and and a sign of forgiveness. And, And so Baptists Baptists look at this and they do not want to declare that their children are automatically washed simply by being born to believers because that seems to suggest that they're saved without ever believing and that that would present an alternate way to, to salvation. Well, here we differ with our Baptist brothers only on the meaning of the sacrament itself. For us, baptism is not a sign of being forgiven on account of your faith as such, but on account of your membership in the covenant. If you're an adult and you're brought into the covenant as an adult because of your faith, then you're baptized still because you're a member of the covenant. And if you're a child born into the covenant, you're baptized as such. But both have the responsibility, the obligation to believe. And so because our children belong to God and are sanctified as as children have always been, Old and New Testament, we give them the sign of the covenant to which they belong, which declares that the full blessings of the covenant are theirs. Salvation is theirs, together with the obligation to believe. God has not changed, and neither has the way of salvation. That's the point that Paul drives home in Romans 3 and 4. And that's how we should always then communicate the gospel to our children. There are extreme Baptist circles where the children of believers are essentially regarded as, as belonging to Satan because they, they're not yet born again, and so they're unregenerate, and so they are considered to remain Satan's children until the day comes when they repent and believe. Nowhere in Scripture are we taught to think about our children in that way that isn't of course all baptists but there are many baptist circles that still teach this now it's true we must we must teach the gospel to our children their baptism does not mean they don't need to know the gospel we we can talk about evangelizing our children it just means giving them the gospel and we must call them to a faithful response but we never do that as if they are outside of the promises as if they are outside of God's grace we call them to Christ because they belong to Christ uh, they live out of Christ's claim on them let's never forget the tender words of the Lord Jesus himself let the little children come to me for to the, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these instead then we call them to a Christ who has already claimed them for himself. And we teach them a gospel that is already theirs, together with the obligation to repent and believe. And that obligation also is theirs. So brothers and sisters, let us indeed then call them to the Savior who has already bought them with his blood and made them part of his people. That's why we baptize them. And that's how we also ought to call them to faith. And let us, of course, always pray then for our children that the Spirit of Christ, the Christ who has claimed them, would also work in their hearts to bring them to Himself. Amen.